we're back to the second part of our interview with Steve Von Till. Enjoy. So, I, I mean, I guess that brings us to Neurosis, this kind of band that you, you've spent a little bit of time in, man. Yeah. Um, I'd, I mean, straight off the bat, I have a very non-PC question to ask you. What do you think of Pain of Mind from before you joined? What were you listening to at that time? And did you dig that record? Or was uh, it just absolutely. a bunch of guys you liked? Yeah, no, I... Uh... I mean, talk about a blessed life. I, Pain of Mind and uh, Christ on Parade's album at the same time were two of my favorite local records, like, by far. You know, I, I was a tape trader, so I had the Neurosis demo, you know, as part of the kind of scene that I was a part of. And so, of course, I looked all over the world for my inspiration at that time. And But as far as, like, local bands, it was all about all about neurosis and Christ on parade. And then, you know, fast forward a few years later and I'm in the band. And then a few years after that, Noah from Christ on parade becomes our keyboardist. So. So I think I was touching on it earlier on and I'm curious how you feel about the label, but I think the thing that feels most apt when I'm talking about Neurosis or indeed bands like Converge, who I think you've described in the past as being kind of kindred spirits of you guys, maybe, um, I mean, I'm sure the guys can throw any number of artists into this, but that kind of notion of outsider metal. How do you feel about that, man? Because <laughs> personally, I've actually, that, that term has really grown on me. I know some terms can get a bit trite, but I feel there's something really nice about the notion that you can make metal without, as you said, that sort of hours and hours of like shredding kind of approach to it that you can do something that's much more emotive and rough so i still cringe at the term metal when talking about neurosis now i am in my blood a, a heavy metal fan you know i i went from listening to the classic rock on the radio in the 70s to everything i could find that was harder which led me you know, to Iron Maiden at 11 years old and led me to Motorhead as soon as I was old enough to bump into it. So that that's in my blood. And uh, being in the Bay Area during when punk and metal were first merging and we had that kind of thrash scene and the DIY punk scene all converging at the same time. So I'm not against metal, but I've always identified where we come from and what we do as as punk. And it turned out that punk... <laughs> ended up being so to me that that punk was of that time i mean we had shows that would have the things people have talked about like oh i can't believe neurosis and green day played the same show or whatever <laughs> yeah. but it, it it was even crazier than that because there would also be a performance artists and there would be rockabilly style punk band 77 style punk band like it was it was just a mix it was just the underground so to me diy punk was the underground it was fuck you there's no rules we do what we want um but as soon as we got keyboards and samples and our guitar tones got heavier because we figured out how to sound a little more huge 
then uh, we weren't even metal yet like that hadn't happened first we just kind of alienated the hardcore punks who were like what the fuck keyboards who are you faith no more and and, and, and actually we're like well hey uh what did you forget about the stranglers or fucking joy division or killing joke what the fuck is your problem you know And uh, we didn't really quite fit in that early kind of, well, not early, the second wave industrial that was starting to have um, like the ministry stuff and skinny puppy because we were a little, Godflesh we, we were, yeah, we, we, well, we did feel kindred with Godflesh uh, because I think there was more of an organic killing joke, a band playing vibe as opposed to the mechanical band playing along to a drum machine. Right. Although Godflesh did have a drum machine, but it did that didn't it didn't get in the way of the organic sound of it. But you know, so we were really kind of in our own in our own territory. And then we were on Alternative Tentacles records after Lookout, and and that felt a little more like home vibe wise because we had you could be uh, on the same label as the Amoebics, Alice Donut. Vogtazo, Hallett, Chemic. Yeah, Lard. Yeah, you know, and all of that, you know, and it, so we never really felt we, we fit in anywhere. And then after kind of giving Relapse a chance, when they kind of reached out to us, we realized that the metal world was actually being more open-minded than the punk rock world. The punk rock world was going towards a warp tour model of punk rock where everything has to be happy-go-lucky pop punk. And... uh and the metal world seemed to open its mind. The next thing you know, metalheads are listening to Mertzbau and Japanese noise. And so, you know, you go where you wanted. And so I think just kind of exploring all those territories, we did. And I understand why people say it. It's because of the heavy guitars and the yelling vocals. But uh, but for me, I still feel that we're more psychedelic than most metal. We're more uh, punk in attitude than most most of it. Maybe that's changed now. But... I, I, I don't know. Maybe there's no good descriptors left, you know? I it's mean, an, it's an interesting furrow you, you plowed. Like I said, it put you in the company of bands like Converge, bands like Melvin's, who I know you're, you're a fan of. Big time. And bands like Boris, even. Like, and I think the thing that these bands and you guys have in common, and I'm, I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass here, but I think there's a credibility thing that you've retained, whereas the bands that went down a more conventional punk route or a more conventional metal route, something became a bit sort of uh, stale about a lot of those bands and you actually mentioned the name earlier on and I had an argument when I, when we said we were going to interview you, I had a sort of pub argument with a friend about uh, who I think was maybe one of the first bands, a progenitor of that, which was Motorhead A band that were one of the only groups that could bridge punk and metal effortlessly, you know, that could appeal to both sides and not seem contrived. And I think you guys, in that kind of 
in-betweener group of those bands and many more have actually found a really nice groove there because it, it's it's always been considered um, credible. You know, and I think credibility is a hard thing to hold on to, especially the bigger you get. Well, luckily we never had that latter problem. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, it comes down to just being true true to the muse kind of what we were talking about when we were talking about my solo record learning to surrender and follow the true spirit and when people start worrying about weird shit like what other people think or how their art might intersect with commerce or um how they can make it or what you know mm. any kind of weird things like that you've you've compromised your art you know maybe some artists if they're a certain style or that, there's a place for that I, I i'm sure there must be but um just from where we come from that seemed to have never seemed like it, that made any sense um and that you you look at people not even necessarily I, i've never actually seen record labels make bands change but i've seen bands talk themselves into changing because they think they think that's what's expected or that that that's some sort of smart move and it it, it yeah. rarely is and the, and the times i've witnessed it Maybe it's worked for them commercially, maybe it hasn't, but for me as an artist, I was always embarrassed by what I witnessed. Yeah, it's, it's this kind of soft power, isn't it? It's like the, the, the label doesn't insist that they change, but there's a sort of incentivization or a sense of maybe this could break for you if you just do this. And you're right, you tend to get uh, longevity issues, I think, with a lot of that stuff as well. It, it, yeah, and it comes down to expectation. What's your expectation? Are you, you know... Did punk bands from the eighties ever expect to like make that their their living? Versus did they just want to make killer music? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it wasn't lost in you guys uh, that when you went from releasing on relapse, which was really like earning your kind of metal stripes in some people's eyes, to then recording with Albini. And metal not stripes. just recording with Albini, but like being one of the most, I think, successful Albini team ups. Like, I mean, people, even though Times, uh, sorry, even though um, Through Silver and Blood is maybe seen as being a kind of commercial high point or a kind of mainstream access high point, press high point, whatever, certainly over here. Um, I think Times of Grace, I've seen it referred to as the point where neurosis sounded like neurosis. And that's like a, that was a pretty huge thing, but there were collective gasps when you did it. Like I remember amongst real metal fans at the time for, uh, being like, whoa, it's a bit of a gamble, you know, to go for such a paired back sound. Um, can I ask, had you guys been recording, because you did most of the Albini stuff live, right? Most of the track in any way. Had you All been of it except like prior? Yeah. Um, we pretty much have done every record with where the, the main tracks you hear is the band set up and playing together. Uh, I really, I don't resonate with that. In fact, it completely blows my mind why people would go, oh, well, that we did today, we did the drums. And, you know, <laughs> like, are you a band or are you a video game? Like what? Like, just fucking show up and play your shit. It's it, it's way more gratifying. It's way quicker and easier. You get a better sound. You get a better feel. Um, 
Except for maybe it's some true. some of that technical cold shit where being technical and cold is part of the energy, I suppose. There would be a place like for everything. Cat, catch 33 by Mashoga David. But it's true at your roots as well, right? Because, I mean, Deep Purple, Sabbath, they were all recording live. Yeah, well. it was roll tape. We're rolling, you know? We're rolling. And it's the band. And even though people hear our stuff is complexly layered, that's the way it's written. It's two guitars, mm -hmm. bass, keyboards, and drums. And occasionally we might have an afterthought and this is maybe once or twice an album of oh i hear a d different guitar part there let me go punch it in and replace that first one with this melody thing but that's very rare because usually we've done that in advance recording time's expensive you know mm -hmm. um but we do the vocals after because we want good vocal takes in nice condenser mics where we don't have the whole band bleeding through the vocals and we can concentrate on playing guitar better but um yeah of course yeah. But but yeah, I mean, it's you guys are pretty frugal in your studio time as well, right? Because I mean, I was seeing like what, six days, ten days, things like that. I mean, you're keeping it tight there. We haven't spent more than six or nine in many albums now. Wow. I mean, if you know, if it's fifty minutes of music and you set up and you play them live, what's the hang-up? You know, well, I guess part of that is the fact that you're working with, as you said, maybe you're the best engineer in the world. The fact that you've got somebody that you've gelled with. Yeah, I mean, we're 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 usually doing a final track on the a final take on the first day. It's not this like days of getting tones. It's like, man, we've spent years getting our guitar tones. <laughs> Just stick a mic in front of it. Um, and have you had any real eureka moments with engineers? Not just not just Steve Albini, but other other engineers. Moments where that you just never looked back. Well, with Neurosis, I mean, it's only been him since 1999, so... Mm -hmm. I, I think I've learned something from everybody we worked with, you know, with Billy Anderson, and when we did Enemy of the Sun, it was very much like that. We just set up and did it, and it was very off the cuff it was a, supposed to be an ep but it went so quick and natural that we went away for a couple weeks and wrote a couple other songs and fleshed it out into a full length um we learned a lot from that we, we learned a lot of what not to do uh, in some experiences as well i think through silver and blood we we wanted to spend too much time and really geek out and what is it like when you double track the guitars and what is it like when you you know, have all this time to waste, and it was exactly that, time to waste, <laughs> and that doubling guitars makes them sound smaller. So, uh, Oh, yeah. Wow. Um, so really, and uh, in Souls at Zero, when we were younger and just didn't have recording experience, we were talked into recording it to a click, and that was a fucking nightmare. Uh, uh, first of all, because Jason had the click so loud in his headphones because we were recording live in a room and our amps were fucking cranked and he couldn't hear the clicks. So we had to change it to a cowbell sound. So finally, when we were mixing, we were, we were like, fuck, do you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> like all of a sudden, like we couldn't find where the fuck that cowbell was coming from. It was, it was everywhere. It turned out to be so loud in his headphones, it was bleeding into the kick drum mic. Fuck. Wow, man. <laughs> and Holy so shit. that, so we had to fucking gate the fucking drums 
to get rid of that shit and add reverb to give them life after it and that's why it, that sounds like shit <laughs> <laughs> Amazing people yeah. in the scenes. Man. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I've, I've obviously learned a lot of technical things from engineers too. That great things from working on my solo records. Uh, what microphones really resonate with my voice and the importance of that. And being a home recording nerd, you know, trying to find really good signal chains that that work with me and quality stuff. Of course, I'll never be able to record that or afford the type of vocal mic that resonates well with my voice with those nice vintage mm -hmm. vintage Neumann microphones. I have to book studio time around who has one you know um <laughs> but but just so watching them and their techniques i mean randall dunn i learned a lot about the uh lushness of plate reverb an actual old emt 140 plate reverb is a magical device and uh steve albini's whole studio is one of the most inspiring things i've ever witnessed when we first went there they hadn't finished uh studio a yet and mm -hmm. so watching just all these punks build this state-of-the-art beautiful studio is so incredible like and, and with they have sleeping spots there where you just want to and we have many times now hole up and live there and be in be in the moment and be in the be in the record the whole time you're there and not to mention watching a, a technician of the first order i mean he's an engineer in the actual meaning of the word you know like people that design spaceships kind of engineer with sound. Yeah. I mean, he, he knows his technical stuff. He has a photographic memory. He knows the math and the science behind things. He knows the history and how the electronics work. He's a de definitely different, not to mention just as a human being, um, he's one of the most thoughtful and ethical people I've ever met in my life. Like I, I, I look at superheroes of ethics and I, I put him and Ian McKay, you know, and, uh, and a few others in, in that, very thin air where people are extremely thoughtful about the way they act and with with what intent i know he gets a lot of crap for being curmudgeonly or for being 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 sharp-tongued at various times but but they're, they're like as far as sheer logic and brain power and reasoning skills uh, he's he's way up there he's not afraid to mince words and speak his mind <laughs> but it's it's not mean like he'll just say i i really you know, I don't understand what, what, where people are thinking when they do this, this, and this. It makes it makes no sense to me if you really break it down. Like there was an interesting one he did just the other day, a, a podcast I listen to quite frequently, Conan Neutron's Protonic Reversal. Have you guys heard that mm -hmm. one? Yeah, yeah. He's got a lot of great, great guests on there. And uh, Steve was on there recently, strangely enough, about podcasts and about monetizing podcasts. And... um his perspective, while a lot of podcasters who might want to try to monetize might not agree with what he's saying, it's really hard to refute his logic and his reasoning. And and he and I see a lot very similarly because he was, you know, around us when we were making our decisions to kind of like pull back on the trying to full time tour and trying to make and make it more of something in balance with life. Because who the hell are all these people making weird music thinking that we can monetize that stuff and and the way yeah. that we run neurot recordings basic basically on handshakes and the way he talks about touch and go records uh which we're going to get to at laughing hyenas um being based on a handshake deal you know if you're working with people that you need to build in a protection against 
mm-hmm. then you're working with the wrong people and you're working in the wrong industry. If you've got, if you both mutually have to try to get one over on each other in the arrangement. Yeah, yeah it's, it's much like a, a, a prenuptial if you need to get a prenuptial, then you probably shouldn't be marrying that person. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's interesting, Steve, uh, Steve because uh, you're in good company as well. Uh, some time ago that uh, Neurot was involved in the DIY or Die the short film that also had Ian McKay and also had Steve Albini in it, which was a film that I know a number of record labels in Scotland, including my own, really looked to. And the people that were involved in that, you guys and and the two that we've mentioned as well as a couple others, as an inspiration for that model, like, can you still do something that's based on just common decency? I know it can, in some circles, seem naive, but you can make it work to some extent. The difference is, as Steve might say, you're not owed a living, you know, and if you you start to think you're owed a full-time career just because of your sheer brilliance, then that's when things start to kind of go sour. Yeah. I kind of want... I kind of wanted to pick your brains on Neurot as well, man. And it's a bit of a cheap question, right? But I, I have two. One of them was of the stuff that you've released, and there's some terrific stuff. I'm a particularly big fan of Grails. Um, which stand out to you as stuff that you really felt might have have been maybe slightly uh, underrepresented? Things that you were like, God damn, that's such a good record. Is there anything from the archives that people listening to this might go and dig out in your recommendation in particular? The Hungarian band VHK. Fogtazo Hallows Chemic. I think it translates to the Galloping Coroners. Uh, Great name. Super underrated band. They, they were like superheroes in the communist era because they were punk and against the law even to exist. And the singer Attila, uh, besides having a badass, you know, name, um, <laughs> he, he's a world-renowned astrophysicist um, who's, who also is an expert in ancient Hungarian pre-Christian religion and shamanism. And he brings all of that to the music. It, it, <laughs> it, it somehow is punk rock that brings to mind uh, pagan ceremonies of of megalithic times while while with the sophistication of somebody who looks to the cosmos for meaning so it's amazing yeah it's absolutely incredible and that's one of my favorite records that we put out it was early on same with zenegeva from japan Zeni gave us great. Kiki Null, you did stuff with him solo as well, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. And that Zeni gave a record is one of my favorite records, uh, favorite heavy records ever, let alone one that we put out. And and there, you know, there is some, there's a, a lot of stuff that's gone under the radar. I don't, I don't think our fan base ever totally bought in on uh, checking out some of the weird shit we were trying to get them to listen to. I, I think uh, a couple of the acts that personally I've tried to really get under people's noses were uh, Tarantel and mm-hmm. uh, Enablers. When a phone rings just below the touch, a person might cultivate a small simulation of that. Thunder. I think are just Enablers, two of the best at the craft yeah. I agree. Enablers is, is huge, and, and uh, 
they have a, a fairly new record out on Exile on Mainstream out of uh, Germany, which is fantastic. And th- those are my two favorite guitar players. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not favorite ever, but they're up there. Like the way that the way that those two guys play together, absolutely. They had some bands in San Francisco before before enablers as well. It's just the way they play is is mind blowing. Um, and uh, Tarantel, yeah. Luckily, they got they also got some love on Temporary Residence and. I don't know if you've ever followed um, Jeffrey Cantu Ledesma's uh, solo material after or even concurrent with the, uh, later Tarantel. I haven't known. It, it's quite beautiful. Um, Check it out on Bandcamp. He's got a lot of stuff, and uh, I don't. I'm bad with titles, man. But th- there was something like "Love Is a Stream" or something like that. It's just mm-hmm. some really beautiful, dense electronic music with a lot of melody uh, inherent in it. I don't know. Great stuff. I think it's it's interesting as well, Mike. So I've obviously I've listened to a couple other things you've done, and I noticed that you're. You've you've explained that you're uh, you feel a little bit exposed releasing a poetry book, but uh, I know you're a big fan of uh, Johan Johansson and a lot of like piano work and ambient kind of contemporary work as well. Um, so it, it it seems consistent to me when I look at some of the back catalogue of of uh, Neurot um, that you do release that kind of stuff. Uh, are there are there any others kicking around just now in that vein? I mean, obviously Johan Johansson is no longer with us. Uh, Olafur Arnolds from Iceland as well. Has done some stuff. I, I I discovered him from that. Uh, you know, we get all the shows from over there later after you guys have seen him. But we got uh, the Broad Church uh, show. Yeah. I don't know if you guys ever yeah. watched that? Yeah, he did the soundtrack for that. Didn't yeah, he? that's what caught my attention. Like, who the fuck did this music? It's incredible, yeah. you know. And <laughs> and then uh, bought all his records from there. There's a guy in Germany, Niels Fromm, who's mm-hmm. uh, and Max Richter. Uh, funnily enough, Niels Fromm, we did a show, was it three weeks ago now, on a pianist called Lubomir Melnik. I don't know if you're familiar with this guy. No. It's Steve, you got to check this guy out. He is a, he's an eccentric. He's the fastest pianist in the world, but he plays piano like... The fastest tone. what? So the fastest pianist. <laughs> <laughs> Accidental expletives. Um, no, he's the fastest pianist in the world, but his music ends up being a bit more like drone because the notes are so tightly packed and it's all to do with the resonance of the wood of the pianos and stuff and he did a piece with Nils Fram where they played back to back and that is spectacular like amazing and they've got a live artist uh, painting while they're doing it it's, how, do you, it's really, how do you spell his name? Oh, here we go L-U-B-O-M-Y-R and then I think it's M-E-L-N-Y-C-K no no C just, no C just, 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 just M-E-L-N-Y-K mm-hmm. I'd definitely um, check but, that out he is he's phenomenal. His personal politics leaves me extremely cold. Um, he's uh, that was a big part of our episode on him. But him and Niels Fram did something truly beautiful together, man. So if you're a fan of that, I think you'll really dig it. 
So when you say fastest, that instantly scares me. So, but it's so fast that the speed becomes inconsequential. So it's nineteen and a half individual notes a second. <laughs> like uh, each hand, each hand, each hand. Yeah, so it moves into a way more sort of transcendental sort of vibe. It becomes like a wash. Yeah, yeah exactly. so, it, so the best example we can give is just like, have you ever seen the style of painting called pointillism, where it's tiny dots and you have to step back to see the picture? Yeah. It's, like that, it's yeah. sort of like that, man. You don't focus on the notes, focus on the, the resonance. And he can't play a song on a different piano because he he arranges the pieces based on the resonance of the wood of indi- every individual Holy instrument. Holy shit, I, mean, he is, I love that. He's out there. Yeah. He is out there, man. He really is. But I think I think you'd really dig it. But yeah, those I'll, I'll um, when I noticed you liking Johan Johansson, I think his record Orphe is one one of the best records I picked up in the last few years. That's a good one. Fordlandia is probably my until recently that was my favorite. Now I'm kind of obsessed with the the one the soundtrack to the new film. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, is there one last cheap question about New York before we go on to your choice for the uh, unsung album, man? Is there anything you wish you could have put out? I mean, I get the feeling maybe you wish you could have put out one of these kind of guys. Um, <laughs> but is there anything you look back on and you're like, damn, I would have liked a shot of that? Well, being a music fan and constantly, you know, uh, yeah, sure. Uh, my whole record collection would have been great. <laughs> uh, except for then I'd be broke as hell. But... Um, <laughs> You know, I, I've really just looked at it as uh, when we initially started Neurod, it was just to provide a home for ourselves for initially. It was like, okay, you know, we've had a good fortune of, of working with good people. And, you know, if you would have told us that we were going to have the opportunities we had, we I, I would have never believed it. And so to think that we've been able to open a few doors for some other folks, the way other people open doors for us by putting out their records you know that was kind of the main thing you know and and also able to kind of frame ourselves in the in the company we see ourselves in as opposed to the way the company others may put us in mm-hmm. um, great yeah so really it it's just it just comes down to being a music fan and a music dork and you know it's it's one of those dream jobs like being a radio show host or a record store owner where you know uh, or a podcaster or, <laughs> <laughs> or a podcaster uh where yeah where you just get to be involved in promoting what you love you know exactly yeah very much so so on that note how about we get you to promote something that you love um so as is the the remit of this show we try and maybe shine a light on records sometimes by bands that are prominent that have been looked uh you know overlooked on sometimes by bands that haven't had the recognition they deserve i would suggest this band falls into the latter latter category um i think they're remarkably influential in the guys I know that were doing noise rock and even doing garage rock, and certainly the guys I still know that are the guys and girls that are DJing. But uh, yeah, very under acknowledged, I think, especially on these shores. I don't know how it compares to the US, but Steve, do you want to introduce this band and the record, and then we'll we'll start to dig into it a little bit? Yeah, the band is Laughing Hyenas, and the record is Life of Crime. And I, I believe, like you said, the latter undersung band, you know, mm-hmm. uh, 
be- I, I, it is their best record and maybe their most appreciated record. So I don't know if it's their unsung record, but it's an unsung band. I mean, I think they're they're kind of lost uh, even though uh, in that period of time. Even though if you if you analyze what happened around that the, that ten years of their existence, I can't imagine a world without them personally. You know, but mm-hmm. I, I I don't know. I think they went under a lot of people's radar, and they probably affected and informed a lot of the bands people did latch onto. It's know? interesting you say that, yeah, because I, I was a really big fan of Amphetamine Reptile and that whole scene, and I think a lot of the bands on that scene. Uh, Laughing Hyenas were maybe two, three years ahead of the curve on some of those bands, say bands like Surgery, things like that. Um, and those bands maybe got slightly, certainly over here, made slightly more of a breakthrough and, and were part of a scene as well, part of a more cohesive sound and scene in that kind of 90 to 92 noise rock thing that came out. Whereas Laughing Hyenas were a little bit more out in their own at the time, too like full on for, for people that liked the Pixies, but you know, not heavy enough for people that wanted. I don't know, Black Flag or something like that, but it's 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 a really interesting choice, man. I really really like this band. I mean, um, what they were from Michigan, like they formed in '85 until '95. Um, quartet. I mean, you, I noticed you've gone for what I assume is, in your opinion, as well, the definitive lineup of the band for sure. Yeah. So this was uh, John. Is it Brannon? Brannon. Yeah. Yep. Brannon on vocals, who's a big feature of the band. And then you had, uh, well, her, her name was Larissa Stolarchik and uh, Kevin Monroe, but both of them uh, adopted Strickland as their second name for the purposes of the band, right? And then Jim Kimball. And actually, as much as I'm not familiar with Laughing Hyenas, or wasn't originally, um, I did know the Dennison Kimball trio. which was Dwayne Dennison and Jim Kimball and the kind of three sort of proto-jazz noise albums that they, they put out. Um, one of which in particular, uh, Soul Machine in 95, I was I was a fan of. So it was interesting to go back and look at more of Jim Kimball's back catalogue. Um, I don't know about it from your perspective. I think a lot of people might reduce Laughing Hyenas to the, the, the sheer excess of Brannon's vocals. And the the shredding nature of them, but I think um, Larissa Strickland's role in the band is maybe slightly overlooked, even amongst people that that write about them. Yeah, well, there's a lot to lot to go in on there. I mean, it it goes without saying, and and many people said uh, John Brandon's vocal delivery is a freaking monster. Yeah. You know, we we've we've done some shows in the last couple of years with. Uh, negative approach reformed and of course i i love negative approach you know mm-hmm. and, and coming up they they were one of the progenitors of what would become hardcore you know yeah. uh and interestingly enough one once they had kind of taken it out there and, and proved what could be done with it and were one of the best at it, then they thought, okay, people are already rehashing this shit. And that's, mm-hmm. that's in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. He's like, ah, oh, this is rehash. Fuck this. Let's do something else. 
Um, yeah, that was like 81 and 82 they were hitting their peak weren't they yeah like I actually I'd actually heard of Negative Approach like I've heard Tied Down it's a really good album Like, so I had no idea he was in this band until until <laughs> until you nominated this so like I, I, I knew of Negative Approach because obviously I'm a big hardcore guy but yeah hearing this I was like holy shit his voice wow it's the same guy man <laughs> you know what I, I used to get a little bit tired and breathless listening to like the early Drive Like Jehu stuff And this is completely, completely redefined <laughs> the, the level of exhaustion I feel when hearing a guy hit those takes. Because, I mean, Steve, you, you do some pretty intense takes. Uh, Scott does as well. But I think the tempo allows you just those moments to breathe. I have no idea how John finds his breath in this band. No yeah. idea at all, man. He's, he says he never gets hoarse or a sore throat or That's insane. anything else. You know, <laughs> it's just a uh, f- freak of nature. But... Uh, <laughs> So obviously his delivery, but his delivery in Laughing Hyenas has a, there, there's a lot more, if you get past that kind of screen of gravel that he's always existing, there's a lot of real emotive and soulful bluesy wailing in there that, that uh, where he brings, he'll bring it down to just a groan, you know, like a, a painful moan and groan and then back out to the roar in, in one line, which is pretty incredible, but Going back to what you said about Larissa's guitar playing, it's some of the most inventive guitar playing I've ever heard. I mean, it, it's, it's, and I didn't know this actually, so this podcast gave me some homework as well. I'd seen them live. You can't argue with that rhythm section. The bass and drums are locked into something really incredible and powerful there. But that guitar playing is out of freaking nowhere. I was trying to trying to analyze it as opposed to just being a listener, knowing I was going to have to talk about it. Um, it's like, what is it about that guitar that it, it it's so free form? I, I don't know that it has any any influences. I think that guitar style may have come from fucking nowhere. Well, I, 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 it's funny that I, I listened to this record deliberately for the first time without checking when it was recorded. So I, I wanted to listen to it like totally context free. And the, like I wrote in my notes, like the guitar tone totally stood out. And I wrote that it had sort of elements of faith no more, Jane's Addiction and then even like UK Indie like Stone Roses and then I went back and saw oh wait she did it before all of them (laughs) (laughs) I was like oh shit okay that's cool I I think there's like a beautiful lack of refinement to it that um, I'd I'd seen that when they did some Scandinavian shows the crowd were shouting uh, she's the blonde Jimi Hendrix and I think the, 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 the call was more apparently to do with the sheer emotional investment and sort of oneness rather than the technicality you mentioned Jimi earlier on and it isn't about the sheer technical chops it was about the the relationship to the instrument and 
as the band went on as well, especially by the time you got to this album, the the, the way Vig was able to capture that, as you said, the, the, the noise of the air in the room, the pressure, the feedback, stuff that you guys did, um, especially given to The Rising, you did uh, with Neurosis, you did a lot of like really good feedback stuff. And this is the first album by them where I feel the guitar really gets the sort of stage pre- place that it deserves. You Agreed. Really There's a more it. three-dimensional sound on this record. It, it, it allows you to hear it quite a bit better. and. And I, I didn't know this. I, I knew she was from a band, not the popular L7, but a more <laughs> L7 <laughs> with the word, yeah, yeah, a more obscure band who, who are fucking great. And third Amazing, man, yeah. third man is actually, I think, reissuing soon some of their recordings. But they were seen more on the weird, arty, dark wave kind of uh, thing or something. But um, I know so- that um, uh, what's his name, uh, Thurston Moore, had said that he was a particular fan of L Seven, this L Seven, um, before you know the other L Seven was even necessarily a thing, and he he was a huge fan. Yeah, I think, and I, so when I read about it. She has no previous guitar experience at all. I assumed she must have been the guitar player for that band. But no, she was just the singer, and she'd never picked up guitar before Laughing Hyenas. So it was like a a completely self-taught, fresh slate, and I guess kind of like Sonic Youth in their real ties to the art world. I guess um, John Brannon was talking about her being real connected to to things art and opening his eyes to a more artistic way of looking at things. I think so. She approached that the guitar from more of that kind of art world damaged. Yeah. I I think there's a Glenn Branca sort of influence in there and that kind of, uh, guitar as vessel, as opposed to guitar as a pristine instrument to be respected. That's really nice. Yeah. It's, it really is incredible. The feedback and, and the, the ghosty notes and the really, uh, open, open string resonant chords are, are all, it's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, to give the, the listeners like a quick sort of guide, in 86 they brought out like a demo cassette, self-titled one. And then in 1987, they brought out an EP, which I think the full title was Come Down to the Merry-Go-Round, but it was remastered and re-released later on with some extra tracks. In that record, the guitar is probably of all the ingredients the lowest in the mix and I think the record suffers as a result it's really missing this ingredient I mean John's vocals are to the fore and they're excellent but it, it, it's just not got that other dimension it was I didn't realise actually that this is like Butch Vig of obviously Butch Vig the Nirvana guy inverted quotes <laughs> This was like one of his earliest projects that he worked with. He'd previously been working with bands like Killdozer and De Kreutzen, um, like cool kind of noise punk stuff. So 
he, he came in at an early stage with Laughing Hyenas and he stayed with them for most of the career. But like I said, there wasn't enough guitar in this one. They brought out the the first full album, You Can't Pray a Lie, in 89. Uh, guitar slightly higher in the mix it's a lot better as a result it's got a really I guess I mentioned the band Surgery earlier on it feels like a slightly harsher version uh, of Surgery I think the vocals are great on that album Uh, the guitar backing them up gives it an overall slightly bigger feel and I think there's also an ingredient to the band Cows especially in the fact that they included a bit of trumpet at this point there's that kind of gonzo noise punk thing happening on Uh, the Crawl EP was in 92 and then their final album in 95 uh, obviously this album was in 1990 but the final album in 95 was Hard Times Um, no, Larissa, she she passed away. Was it two thousand and six? I think it was I, I around about so. then, wasn't yeah. it? Um, but yeah, ninety five hard times came out. That's coming off the back of the grunge frenzy. I'm I'm kind of surprised actually that this band didn't do more during the feeding frenzy. You know, the one that got like Jawbox and Helmet and all those bands signed. I'm amazed that there wasn't a bit more attention paid to Laughing Hyenas because what Life of Crime shows is that they had some fucking tunes. Like they had some really good songwriting at that stage. I feel with hard times they kind of overshoot that. It ends up being a little bit. People compared it to Stooges, but for me it's sort of like a cross between the MC5 and the Rolling Stones, but without the better elements of either. It feels just a little bit stale. They weren't working with Butch Vig at that point either. I'd assume Butch Vig was too expensive <laughs> and in demand <laughs> by 1995, but I do think that you've really got them at their like Halcyon era. Life of Crime is such a tight record. So, so like conservatively written in terms of like there's not a lot of fat in it so eight, eight, eight songs I think yep eight for, songs for, for the whole thing um, as you said like definitive lineup, best sonic balance um, it's harsh but it's full uh, the guitar's really out there give it like, like so Larissa's really pulling her weight in it um, the vocals are probably at their best I did kind of wonder if the vocals at a couple of points in it had been sort of subtly double tracked because they're so big and I don't know if that's just no, that's his technique, man. He does that live. You you wonder that live. He, it he uh, <laughs> it's like it's he, like screamo throat singing, man. That's crazy. <laughs> he he cups he cups and you can hear it. He cups the microphone, mm-hmm. and so he can ah. he can he can change the frequency uh, with his hands as he pulls it up. I mean, it looks like he's bashing his teeth out half the time, and he may be, but uh, <laughs> but he 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 manipulates the tone. He can get that kind of. Lo-fi radio, late radio sound, and then sweep it into full range. I don't know if he's doing it intentionally or if that's just his style. He's worked out, but he also uh, takes a full PA into the recording studio. Um, Iggy Pop did that, so they wanted to do that. You know, uh, (laughs) from what I read, as the the kind of recording notes, and so there would be uh, the handheld mic going straight to the recording desk. Uh, but there would also be mics in front of the, their, you know, rehearsal PA catching yeah. that kind of distorted, raw, small club roaring sound as well. And yeah. I think they blended that into that perfect thing. And that's where you get, I think, that double track sound at times. 
Yeah, you'd also have that very slight latency because of the PA signal and stuff. That that's a really interesting mix. The only actually the only other singer I've seen really master that cupped hand technique is uh, the singer Guy McKnight from the eighties Matchbox Beeline Disaster, which was like a really dark British rockabilly punk noise band and I think he's a really big fan of this band and I didn't know that um, John Brennan had done that so that makes sense. Um, I also think one of the things that really elevates this record is that they got such a fucking killer bass tone Like, there's almost a a bit of the early unseen on the bass tone that was really missing from the previous records. They had a lot of the top end on the other records, but they didn't have a lot of the low growl. And on this one, they really filled it out. I mean, it's it's maybe a sign of Butch really starting to grow into his role as a producer as well. Yeah, yeah, the the bass and drums are pretty untouchable. I remember the the time I did get a chance to see them in Berkeley... um, I was blown away by every element we've discussed, but but the way the bass and the drums were locked in together was so incredibly tight and and with such great tones, and that drummer hit so hard and deliberately, but with good tone as well, you know? There's probably no better example of that as well. The sixth track on it, Wild Heart, that bass and drum locked in riff is just unbelievable, man. For me, that I think that's the best tune on it. I love the simplicity of the chorus as well, that kind of wail. But, oh man, as you said, the rhythm section, just the connection that's going on there. Yeah. And they're, and they're holding it together enough to allow Larissa's guitar insanity to be as free as it was. Because if you, I think if, if you were able, you kind of assume the, the guitar's playing along at times too, you know, like in the same kind of thing. But if you, I think if you, if we were able to isolate those tracks, I think that guitar is doing some really in, insane things that in some ways have nothing to do with what they're doing, but complements it incredibly. Like uh, it, it's from such a unique mindset. I, I would love to have that yeah, opportunity, I mean, you know? When the other two members have done so much of the heavy lifting of a song, because I mean that song could exist without the guitar full stop, it gives the guitarist so much freedom to go and just flesh that out and work over the top of it. I think I think you're right, man. I think the guitar over that is just inspired because it's got so much freedom to roam uh, within the context of the song. Um, there was, I mean, other highlights on it. I really liked his slightly more David Yao approach on "Let It Burn." vocals were a little bit lower in the register not as shrieked um, I think the album's got a great pacing it's something that really helps it a lot they, m- more so than their previous records they judge it well in terms of fast slow, mid tempo they get a really nice flow to it. you never feel particularly exhausted um, Outlaw, the 7th track, the western vibes and that are great Uh, 
and I think bands that are kind of breaking through now there's a sort of a bit of a second wave of noise rock and I think bands like that but Tropical Fuckstorm is it Australian? New Zealand? I'm not sure but they're a band that are getting heavily shared just now and they owe a lot to the sort of stuff that's appearing in this And the final tune, man, Life of Crime is so simple. What was the name of that band you just said? Tropical Fuckstorm. <laughs> and they're getting popular, you said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I don't think they're stupid, man. They knew if they went for a crazy name, they would get a little bit of notoriety and get some column inches <laughs> that way. I mean, they got a couple of good tunes, but a lot of the stuff they're doing, is as competent as it is, um, it's sometimes a little bit galling because there are so many great bands that were doing it 30 years ago and you just feel it'd be great if people did their due diligence and looked at where those influences come from. But, I mean, in saying that, I'm sure the band do what they can to try and shine a light in it. Um, I do think the final track, the title track, Life of Crime, is outrageously good. The backing vocal in that as well is just brilliant. Yeah. It's a total change of texture. So weird those coming yeah, up. Th- that's what I was wondering because I, I noticed that it was uh, not. It was the only song on the album. Uh, I couldn't find my new LP reissue. I have it somewhere, but it's in one of my four locations where my LPs are spread out between the house <laughs> and the office. So I only had my original CD from Touch and Go, and that uh, didn't have many credits on the CD because they put "You Can't Pray a Lie" and life of crime on one one disc and all it said was all songs written by laughing hyenas except life of crime by roman Mm. and i wondered who that roman was that's weirdos huh yeah yeah Hell of a choice, man. Yeah, it's a hell of a choice. Cracking album. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, you're obviously known. I mean, your band are known, but you are also personally known for the the character in your vocal. Do you, do you take a lot from Brennan? I wish. I, I <laughs> it makes uh, makes me feel like a poser when it comes <laughs> to, to to screaming. I mean, that's just a monster of a voice. I don't know that that's uh, otherworldly. You know. In a lot of ways, I've well, sort of, yeah, it's, it, it's huge influence, it, of course. You know, well, I think I think it's safe to say, given your solo work and the neurosis work, I think I think there's something of a you're kind of sandwiched in between him and Tom Waits, man. I think there's an element of both in there. You know, lower range, but that full throatedness. Um, when when you picked it, it, it just seemed like a a really great reference point for that. Well, thank you. Right on. <laughs> as you say man a fantastic choice and yeah it's been an absolute pleasure we have one more thing to spring in you and this is totally unrehearsed as you may have heard when we did the, the Sonic Youth episode every week we do a thing called the Nexus or almost every week we do a thing called the Nexus where a listener or uh, a, an interviewee uh, nominates anybody whether real or fictional in the world and we have to try and connect the band from that week to that uh, person that they've nominated. So I'm going to invite you to take 10 seconds and think, just say the first person, real or imagined, can be a fictional character, it's up to us to, f- to, to 
be up to the challenge and when in two weeks time whatever band we choose we will have to try and connect them to it in a sort of six degrees of separation way <laughs> no pressure <laughs> trust me last last week last week we had the 13th dalai lama uh we've had uh who have we had we've, we've had the the president of djibouti that was a few weeks ago so i mean well the whole the, thing started because we couldn't get away from dave Grohl each episode so yeah dave Grohl kept oh, man, the oh guy is was that what you guys were on about okay I, I remember hearing that i'm like what the fuck are they talking about <laughs> dave Grohl he just he's everywhere he's, yeah. he's everywhere man he's everywhere and it just became like a running joke like we could connect every musician to some horrible cameo that dave Grohl had done somewhere so uh yeah, and unfortunately, oh, because your yeah. ties to Albini, you're not far away from Dave Grohl. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. Oh, okay, okay, it's great. Good, I like that. It's a good one. I like it's it. a good one. Because like, at first thought, it's pretty antithetical to where we are now. Uh, like, you'd be amazed. You've got you'd a long, amazed you've got a long way to go to there. the Hobbit from Detroit. <laughs> 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 also, I'll bet you any money I can get there via the Nazi party. <laughs> it always in, these, in this day and age it always ties back to a white supremacist somewhere man <laughs> sad um, Steve really appreciate you taking the time to do this um, the, the album is fantastic uh, your back catalogue is fantastic your your label was a big inspiration personally so I've had a, I've got a lot out of this I'm sure the other guys have got their own well yeah you, you stole a lot of questions I was going to ask Chris so you know <laughs> we are but one mind I guess <laughs> so yeah thank you so much it's been great yeah th- thank you guys appreciate it <laughs> <laughs>